All right, let's go. Colossians chapter 1. And while you're uh, flipping there to Colossians chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, there are always Bibles for you, not only to use, but to take and keep on the back table back there. They're, um, they're our gift to you if you don't have a Bible, or if you just maybe forgot your Bible this week, you can always take those. Like we've said in the past, they're kind of cheap little pew Bibles. And so if you want a better one, lost and found has some good ones. Um, But uh, hey, before we get into Colossians chapter 1, let me uh, just mention a couple brief things. First is that if you notice in your loop, which is what we sort of creatively call our bulletin, uh, there is a new member class that we call the starting point coming up on Friday night, March 12th and Saturday morning, March 13th, what we do here, both of those are kind of that night, Friday night and Saturday morning comprise our membership class. It's about a six hour process. And um, instead of trying to string it over a bunch of different weekends, we kind of have a big fire hose, little mouth philosophy on that and trying to get it all done because we're such busy people. So um, please, if you want to join, I want you to come to that class And also, if you're just new to the church and you just want to learn more about the church, that's a great place to uh, start. We don't run the Jedi mind trick on you if you come to that class, but you're not quite ready to join yet. We understand that, but it's a good place for you to learn. So I'm coming to that class. The end of that class, there won't be any strange pressure to join. Um, In fact, we let you kind of sit on it for a week because we want to be real clear about who we are, what we believe, what we believe God has called us to do, some of the unique things about our culture and our vision and our theology here, and so we're very clear about that, and that's a really intensive class. So sign up for that. If you can't make it, if you're out of town that week or whatever, please let us know, and um, if there's enough folks this round, we may do a makeup class as well. So um, if that date doesn't work for you, but you're still interested in it, please do let us know. And also something that I botched earlier is if you're a visitor here and um, and you're here for the first time or first couple times, we don't know who you are, we'd love for you to fill out a little card. It's in that loop. It's called the connection card. And uh, again, full disclosure, we, we won't chase you down or hound you or beat you up with phone calls or emails. Um, we'll maybe give you a call or a letter or an email, ask you to come back and hope that you do. And if you don't, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll get the hint. <laughs> and so um, if we, we'd love for you to, we'd love for you to, you know, put your name down there so we can uh, find out who you are, though. And if you're from Crosspoint, always use that for uh, for prayer requests or whatever. Just let us know what's going on. So, all right. Well, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we have been the last couple weeks, and we will be for the next couple months in Colossians. And uh, by the way, um, I, I am endeavoring to memorize Colossians. I'm done with chapter 1, a few verses into Colossians chapter 2. It's been kind of slough, uh, rough sledding, slough, rough sledding in uh, Colossians 2. I um, hope to give that to you in a while. But uh, I'm going to challenge you also to try and memorize at least portions of Colossians. Anybody got anything? Anybody want to just stand up and belt it out loud and proud? wouldn't be the first time people have done it before here. I mean, come on, this isn't some formal event. This is just the gathering of the saints. All right, by your nervous shifting, I will assume that nobody has um, Colossians at all, anything. But um, hey, this particular passage that we're working through right now, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, would be a great thing for you to memorize. It is one of the most important and densely packed descriptions of Jesus 
in the Bible. And um, instead of blowing through it, we're, uh, we're going real slow through this particular portion of the chapter because it is, as I've mentioned the last several weeks, I think it is the probably the most dense and descriptive and beautiful and important description of Jesus in the entire Bible. And that's saying something because the entire Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> and Colossians 1, 15 through 20, these six verses are the densest, most beautiful, most descriptive passages about Jesus. And so we're going to go real slow because we're Christians and we're following Jesus. And so um, we're not in a fire. We're not going to a fire. We're not in a rush. We're just going to look at, look at it. So, but here's what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been kind of very doctrinal, really looking at the, the, the truth of this verse. And that's, I think, very good for us. And last week was pretty intense. And if you missed last week, I really encourage you to pick up a CD, which are always free for you to pick up on the table, or go to our website and listen to it. You can download it. You can subscribe to a podcast. All of our notes that I use, um, that I put together just as I study, I put them on the website. Really important truths about the sovereignty of Jesus, the providence of Jesus, how uh, Jesus interacts with basically everything that happens to include evil. It's a very difficult truth. Um, and, and that's a, a huge piece of doctrine. And we've got some more doctrine to cover in the coming weeks from this uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. We're going to look at Jesus the Reconciler next week. But today, I want to kind of push away from the intensity of doctrinal truth, which I believe is incredibly important for us here as a church, and do a little bit more of an application. And today, I really am just going to ask some questions. And here's the whole point today. This is the point up front, and then I'm going to ask a bunch of questions and pray that the Holy Spirit would just kind of hit us and settle on us and stir us as a people and collectively as a church. And here's the whole point today. The point, midway through Colossians 1, 15 and 20, is there's this, there's this statement about how Jesus is the head of the church, and he is to be preeminent in the church and really in the whole universe. And so I want to impress upon us today that the truth that we're going to settle down and grapple with and try and unpack and apply to our lives is that God has created this body of believers called the church. Now, it, on several different levels, the church exists in the universe. There is the church, capital C. It's all the believers who have ever believed in Jesus from, from the beginning of the church until now, both dead and alive. And then there is the church living, capital C, on the earth, everybody around the world who believes in Jesus and all the different types of denominations and different styles of churches and different countries and different languages, tribes, nations, and tongues. And then there is the local church, and that's what we're going to be concerned with today. At the local church, little c, places like Crosspoint that gather together to live out our part of the body of Christ, and it's absolutely essential. You cannot listen to me. We talk about this a lot. You cannot be a biblical Christian. You cannot obey the scriptures on your own. You cannot do life as a Christian apart from a vital connection to a local body of believers that is a church. It's absolutely essential. And so we're going to look at that today and we're going to ask ourselves questions about what type of church God wants us to be 
and what type of people he wants us to be. So let's do this. Let's pray. Ask God to give us wisdom. And as we're praying today, I want us to pray for... Uh, remember a couple months ago, Jimmy McElrath, a young guy, came here and he's starting a church. Jimmy uh, was on staff at St. Luke United Methodist downtown, one of the historic churches in Columbus. And Jimmy has been sent out by his denomination, which is the United Methodist, to plant a church in the area. It's called The Ridge. And I think they're meeting at Freedom Cheerleading, uh, that place over there by Knowledge. I might be getting that wrong, but it's that cheerleading place over there by Knowledge off of Williams Road. Uh, Moon Road, Williams Road area, and I think today, they've had a couple preview Sundays, but I think today is sort of their first Sunday that they're launching and going to start meeting weekly, and Jimmy's a good brother, he loves Jesus, and um, so let's pray that God would do mighty things through the ridge and all the churches in our area that love Jesus, right? Lord, as we open up your scriptures, we thank you for the Bible. Um, It's stunning, God, it's stunning that you would reveal yourself to us in the Bible, And yes, the Bible in places is hard to understand, but that's more of a commentary on our sin and our rebellion and the consequences of the fall than it is on your clarity. You have been utterly clear to us in your scriptures. But we have work to do to sort through our self-absorption, through our lack of attention, and through our rebellion to get to a place where we can hear your voice through these scriptures. So would you help us do that today? By the power of your illuminating Holy Spirit that dwells not only in us individually as believers, but corporately in this room to bring enlightenment and encouragement and revelation to us as we study these truths in your scriptures. God, would you blow a fresh wind through all the churches in the Chattahoochee Valley, uh, all the churches that love Jesus and every different type of denomination, the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the Presbyterians and the, 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 uh, the Episcopalians and, and all, the, all the different uh, flavors of Christianity that I'm not naming but that you know well, would you, would you fill our brother and sister churches with the power of your presence today? Would, the, would my brother pastors preach from the scriptures and not from ideas? And would you cause uh, a revival to stir in our valley And would you humble us as pastors and as individual churches? And would you knit us together in a way that we truly seek one another's good and we truly want Jesus to be famous in our area? Because we live in a religious area where a vast majority of the people think they know Jesus, but by their life they unmistakably deny him. And so would you cause us to to refuse religion? Uh, to refuse self-centered pragmatism and self-help and, and consumeristic Christianity? And would you cause us, by your grace, to be people who are worshipers of the God of the universe and whose lives reflect that? And in particular, for our brother and friend, Jimmy McElrath, would you bless him today? I know the anxiety of that moment, and I just know that the as Don so well put today, that the enemy is opposed to the ridge, that there are spiritual forces of wickedness that want to destroy that place. So would you cause them to make much of Jesus today? Would you bless them? Would you provide for them? Would you encourage Jimmy and his wife? Would you guard his children from the, from the, uh, the potholes of ministry? And Lord, would you cause great things to happen in the ridge? And then today, God, as we... 
as this little tribe of Crosspoint opens up your scriptures, would you do the same for us? Would you give us a good perspective on ourselves? Would, as Romans 12 said, would you give us sober judgment? And would we exalt Jesus today? And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's read. Let's go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to settle down on verses uh, 17 and 18, but I'm going to read through 20. He is the image, and now Paul is speaking of Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And that's where we ended last week. And remember, of all the four things that Paul could have talked about when he says that Jesus created all things for himself, he mentions these four things of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And then we went to Ephesians and looked at how uh, two of those words, rulers and authorities, were, were put in the context of evil forces. So Jesus is even sovereign over evil. And in a providential way that is mysterious to us, knowing all things past, present, and future, causes all things to serve his glory. That's a spectacular and very difficult truth. But I think it should bring encouragement to us. And that's where we ended last week. And now verse 17. Paul starts to narrow it down now from the global universe, everything. I guess global universe is kind of, those two words don't really go to it together. But you know what I'm talking about, everything. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now this is an important verse, it's an important truth, and we're going to just spend just a second on this and then get into verse 18. The words there in the original language, Greek, that the letter to Colossians was written in by Paul, there where it says all things hold together, it carries with it more than just this one-time deal where Jesus has sort of set up the universe and he created it kind of like a watchmaker would and then just sort of winds it up and steps back and lets it go. That's not the sense of this word. What this word means is that Jesus not only creates it, but that he gives it It's sustaining power, like every second, every moment, Jesus is causing, like, all of the molecules and the atoms. I want, just, this is just to cause us to worship God here for a second. Every, every little molecule, a rock is a rock because Jesus is holding a rock together. Water has the properties of water because Jesus is causing water to be water. The the air is thinner in Colorado because Jesus somehow ordered it that way. There's pollen being blown off of a leaf in a hillside that has never been seen by humanity somewhere in the world today. Or maybe not because it's winter, but it's spring somewhere. So pollen is blowing off. There's a bee who is pollinating that flower. I'm, I'm just... You know, there's, there's, a, there's a depth of an ocean. There's a creature that humanity has never discovered in the depths of the ocean somewhere that is somehow serving the ecosystem of the deep, someplace that Jack Cousteau has never been to right now, is holding together because of the Creator Jesus, who is, if He withdrew His presence from that little undiscovered sea urchin, would cease to exist. That's 
Just think about that right now. All, all, how many bones are in the uh, human body? 206? Sort of? <laughs> Jennifer says six. Okay, of all your little bones. You know, how many bones are there in an ear? There's, there's like a bunch of bones in your ear. If, if Jesus somehow removed his, his presence from your ear, it would fall off. Think about that for a second. That should cause us just just weep. We, we take for granted the chair is solid and it holds you up right now because Jesus is holding it together. Worship! That's amazing. And that's not even what we're going to talk about today, but just chew on that for half of a second. Okay, verse 18. Now he's zooming it down now. Verse 18. So he's the, he's the creator, sustainer of all these things. And now verse 18, Paul starts to land this plane from 30,000 feet and to bring it in to local groups of people like us and what Jesus is doing in us. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, and the context here is zoomed down from all creation into the church, that in everything that we do, not only universally how the atoms in the furthest galaxy are colliding or holding together to serve Christ's glory, but now, much more specifically, the church, this gathering of a couple hundred people here today, how we are gathering together, that in everything, he might be preeminent. So what Paul is saying is, is that in this little gathering of believers, Jesus makes his glory known to the universe by being preeminent among us. We have grown up in a culture, most of us, where church is sport. Where, you know, it's just kind of, hey, we go and we go for a while and then that preacher makes us mad or they change preachers or then something else, a little sexier comes along so we switch and we go over there and, or whatever and I, I, listen, there are appropriate times to move churches and to uncommit somewhere and commit somewhere else. But we have, because of just the way we are as Americans, created a culture where church is, is just kind of what we do on Sundays for the most part. And, and it's basically just kind of a religious event rather than a place where God's people get together to actually live out the preeminence of Christ. And so here's what, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask some questions and then zoom it down into us personally and ask some questions. And that's really all I have today. And so um, just let the Holy Spirit hit us as I ask these questions. And these questions are, what does it look like? Here's the overarching question. What does it look like for Jesus to be preeminent in a church like Crosspoint? What, what does it really look like? And then we're going to ask a final question. What, what does it look like in my individual lives, our individual lives? So here's the first question. I just jotted these down throughout the week. 
Um, what, what would it look like, Crosspoint, if we just, if we really insisted on doing life together as a community? Like what, what would that look like if we, if we just insisted that we knew one another, that we struggled with one another, that we blessed one another? That we, what if it was not okay for people to be anonymous? But that didn't cause us to be kind of an ingrown little strange enclave that, you know, was sort of like goofy Christian where, you know, the women wear doilies and sleeves down to their wrists and, you know, no makeup. But I mean, it was, I'm sorry if you come from one of those cultures, but what, but like, what if, what if, what if the fact that we actually got to know one another and it just, it wasn't okay to show up a little bit late to kind of sit off in the corner and scoot out at the end, and for us just to, what if it was not okay for us to really sort of be anonymous? And what if, what if the group of people that call Crosspoint or whatever local expression of the body, what if they just insisted on doing life together? Like, and what if it was organic, and the leaders didn't have to push and prod and come up with all these little programs and events so that people, but what if we were just... What if we all just exhaled and we just said, look, we're going to know each other's name. We're going to bless one another. We're going to live life together. We're going we're gonna to know each other's needs. And we're just we're going to do it, man. We're going to do it. What, what would that look like among our community? And what if, what if, what if life point groups were just, that was just sort of the outcroppings of that. It was just, it was just. Just the, just, that was just kind of the, the minor details that we have to organize ourselves in. But what if it was just organic and people just insisted that we know one another? And, and what if people that were here for a while just had their hearts on a, on a platter and their heads on a swivel so that when they saw somebody that looked hesitant or disconnected or afraid, they just, their heart went to that person and, and we just were all about one another. What, what if, what would that look like? What if, what if we combined depth with sensitivity to people who aren't yet Christians? There's this sort of this war in the church world is that churches that are going to be really biblical and handle biblical truths are churches that cannot also be attractive to unbelievers. And so what happens is, is churches tend to sort of go one way or the other. They tend to be like really, really doctrinal and they deal with truth and they don't do a real good job of explaining Christianity to seekers or they sell out and they they you know they do goofy stuff and they compromise biblical truth and they kind of try and dumb down Christianity so that the unbelievers will somehow you know they they play you know, secular stuff. They kind of—we're not too crazy about Jesus. So you come, you come, hang out with us, and then, like, we'll—you know—eventually, if, if you find us cool enough, then we'll sort of throw down the Jesus card. And it's very, very focused on the person. And I understand the heart of that. I definitely do. But what if, what if we were both biblically robust, and yet that somehow also became the thing that attracted people to us? Like, here's the thing I've never understood about churches that. They want to be attractive to unbelievers or seekers, and so they kind of dumb things down. It's like, 
how do you how do you encourage somebody that they should maybe you know a young person that's single and you're a married person how do you encourage them that marriage is the way to go by acting that you don't really love your wife or your husband or by just being passionately in love with your wife or husband so that they will see that and be drawn to that and talk about your wife and talk about your husband and love her and serve her and give your life to her and let your life burn with passion for that spouse? Or do you kind of stand at a distance with like, marriage is pretty good, it's okay, but it's not that, and then just kind of hope that somebody sort of wants to get married by you keeping your spouse at an arm's distance? Isn't that insane? But that's kind of how we do it. Oh, let's not talk about, let's not, let's not go through, don't preach through books of the Bible because that'll be above, what? Like we want, we want to burn for passion for Jesus and we want that to be the thing that actually draws people who need Jesus. But we don't want to be knuckleheads about it and fundamentalist wackos. We, but we want to be practically passionately burning for Jesus. And what if we could combine those two things? And what if people that were believers brought their Bibles and dug into the Word and actually were like, yeah, leaning forward and showed up so that they could sing and create an atmosphere where the presence of Jesus was was really strong so that a person coming in isn't just relying on the passion of one guy up on stage to pep up the crowd, but everybody, there was this collective, deep and abiding and fervent, earnest passion for Jesus that reaches everybody, and it just sort of drew people. And it wasn't just a gig where one guy who's been in his little bat cave all week studying the scriptures has to come and do a dance like a circus monkey to to hope that you will catch his passion. What if, like what if, you know, what if collectively there was just this strong, passionate sense of the presence of Jesus and his Holy Spirit among us, and coupled with rich and biblical songs, and deep and practical and biblical teaching, it drew people to Jesus. What if, what if, what if, what if we engaged and I ho- I, we try and do this here. What if we engaged hard truth with humility? We talk a lot here about our two-handed view of theology. There are things that we hold in a closed fist, which I believe are essential for Orthodox Christianity, which I think that all Christians should believe since you know, the, the time of the book of Acts. Then there are some things that I do believe but that are difficult truths that I think Christians will be, uh, that they will be, that they will grow in their faith if they engage these issues. What if we, what if we actually talked about these issues, but we did it with humility and grace? And what if we didn't avoid them? And what if we endeavored to be humble, but passionate in our pursuit of biblical truth? What if we didn't skip over stuff like Romans chapter 9? which is probably the most difficult chapter in the Bible, where it says God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. What if we wrestled with that truth? What if we didn't stick our head in the sand like an ostrich about spiritual gifts and sort of give lip service to the fact that we believe that God can heal, but we never actually pray for God to heal, or we believe that God can do all these great things, but we we like it's on our lips, but it's not in our practice. What if we humbly figured out a way to work 
difficult biblical truth. What if we, what if we wrestled with the sovereignty of God in all things? I mean, what if we did that? What if we graciously engaged the issues in the Bible that are very difficult to handle? And we, and we let, and if we disagree on some of these issues that Christians can disagree on, it didn't cause us to run off to other churches because we don't like what the preacher says about spiritual gifts or predestination. But we say, hey, can I understand where he's on on that? He's humble. He's gracious. And so let's, let's wrestle with God. What if we did that? What if we did that? I think, I think that would cause... I think that would cause great strength in our body. And what if you, what if you wrestled with those issues individually? And we did collectively as a church. I hope that we are. I think we are. But what if we, what if we were more public about that? What if, here's my next question. What if we did the masculinity and the femininity thing well? Um, if I didn't mess you up with that predestination election um, thing there, I'm going to mess you up with this. But listen, we live in a culture that is utterly broken when it comes to male and female roles. And I want to say this very humbly, but I want to say it because I think it needs to be said. And I think this has a lot to do with Jesus becoming preeminent in a place, preeminent in a place. The problem with the world is male passivity. Men are the problem. Here's what happened in the garden. Eve ate the apple, but we tend to, in our mind, think that Adam was like over in the corner of the garden slaying a buffalo or something. Working. He was standing right next to her, and she handed it to him. Like, here you go, and he's, he's a bump on a log, not leading. And so what led to Eve's sin was Adam's passivity. And that's the problem with the world. And here's what female culture has done, especially in the Bible Belt, as a reaction to male sin. So hear me, sisters. Primarily, in many cases, female spirituality has overreached to compensate for male passivity and sorriness and has created a sort of overly strong, overly aggressive, unbiblical femininity. And it takes its form. And I mean, we've got a thousand different women's Bible studies in this city. And I'm all for women studying the Bible. But sometimes the feeling I get from all of these sort of little spiritual pockets of intense female spirituality is an out-of-balance biblical order where the men are off, you know, fishing, hunting, starting companies, making thousands of dollars, watching football, showing up on church on Sunday, playing the part. But deep down inside, they can't connect because their women are wishing that they would be biblical men and lead them and their families and their children in the Lord, but they're not doing it. And so they run off to these conferences with all these national, very talented, very gifted, very fruitful ministries. And, and it, what it does is it furthers the wedge between the husband and the wife because the wife is the super spiritual leader and the dude is the bump on the log. And what if we, what if we just said, hey, that, 
that ultimately is not healthy. I'm not saying women don't study the Bible. I'm not saying don't have women's Bible studies. But what if we insisted that the men take their place humbly? And when men take their place, it doesn't subordinate women. It doesn't lord authority. They take their place like Jesus took his place over the church. And you know what that looks like? It looks like humble, life-sacrificing service. And in that culture, femininity finds its humble, appropriate, secure place and doesn't have to overreach. And little boys and girls grow up and daddy's the one who leads humbly. And mommy's the one who nurtures appropriately. And it's biblical. And it's secure. Men, that is within your reach. You can do that. Look, I have trouble with that, guys. I can get up. It, I, I can, where's a couple hundred people in this room? It doesn't, I could preach to you in my sleep. Poorly, probably, but I could, I don't, I don't think it doesn't cause me any nervousness. I get amped up like it's game day. I get my game face on so the juices are flowing. But I could, I could speak in front of thousands of people and I wouldn't bat an eye. But sometimes when I need to just sit down and pray for Jennifer, and she left the room for some reason, I guess maybe one of our kids is acting up, I don't know, but sometimes when I just have to pray for Jennifer, I feel like a third grader. I get nervous and anxious and I feel stupid and silly. Why is that? Well, maybe because there is a spiritual attack against families and biblical manhood and the order of homes. So I have this problem too, men. But the answer is not like this, this de- different departments of spirituality where the women go do their things and the men go do their things. We must, what would it look like if we created a culture where men humbly led and their leadership took the form of Christ where they laid down their lives, they unpack biblical truth, and a woman finds her security in that? What would that look like? And for the seven of you ladies who will be with us next Sunday, (laughs) I, uh, I hope, listen, I hope, sisters, that you hear my heart on that. I think femininity flourishes where men are masculinely biblical. And I think when women have to overreach... Sure, there can be some fruit from that. I'm not saying I'm not saying there's not fruit from that. I'm not saying women shouldn't study the Bible together. Listen, to, listen to him. I'm talking about I'm talking about intangible cultural expectations. Do you hear my heart? Women should study the Bible together. We should have big, uh, 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 but it's a culture, and we need to be careful about male passivity and overreached female spirituality. What would it look like, next question, everybody relax for a second, let's shake that one off. What would it look like if we, if we had a culture of pervasive authenticity and honesty? And what if this was a safe atmosphere? What if it was really okay to not be okay? So what we just talked about there, that being one of the things, what if you're not there? What if right now, right now, husband, you sense, God, I'm not there. 
And what if instead of, you know, just feeling guilty about what I just rolled out to you, what if then that caused you to say, okay, I, I, I'm going to go to a guy who seems like he's got it together. And I'm just going to say, hey, dude, I am not there. Would you help me with this? What does it look like in your life? But the problem is, maybe you've been a Christian for 15 years. Maybe you're a leader in business. Maybe you have an appearance, society-wise, that would make you feel embarrassed to actually be authentic. And so this culture, this face, this religious game that we play, fights against our very ability to grow. Because we're all trying to put on a front that is really broken. It's a house of cards. It's a paper tiger. And so what if, what if we had this culture where we could really be honest? And that's why I'm always struggling with like, appropriately confessing to you where I really am. Like, sometimes I feel like if I told you guys what's really going on in my heart and life, you'd be simultaneously encouraged and scared. Because <laughs> you'd think, oh my gosh, that guy's leading the church? Jeez, I'm going somewhere else. And so that's why I need to tell you, man, I, my life has been broken in certain periods of my life. I have struggled. I had a horrible week. There are times when I feel dry and hollow. Men, I've struggled with every manner of temptation that men struggle with. And I've almost ruined my life with it. And so if we perpetuate this culture where everybody has to act like it's Sunday morning and you get your church face on, it cuts against the grain for our ability to grow and be nurtured and real. What if we refused religiosity. So what if we refused it? What if confession and repentance were our norm? And what if we didn't just say, okay, because this generally is what happens in accountability groups is people get together and they just like, okay, it's okay to be okay here. Or it's okay to sort of be honest here. And so guys just get together and talk about how sorry they are. And they feel like just getting together and talking about how jacked up they are is like the goal. No, the goal is to actually grow. <laughs> so what if we also then infused our confession and our repentance with biblical truth and mentorship? And what if older men and older women reached out to younger men and younger women who weren't quite there yet, and one generation commended their works, the works of God to another, and people didn't just confess and get comfortable in their sorriness, but people actually grew. Little by little. What if... What, what does that look like? Help me with that. Pray along these lines. A couple more questions and we're done. What if we took, what if we took mission seriously? Like what if we felt like, hey, the biblical mandate is that God would use us to bear much fruit. And what if the goal was not just cool, uh, relevant, helpful, truth-giving church services, but the advance of the kingdom? And what if that wasn't just the professional Christian's job, what if that was all of our job? To grow, to grow, to, to invite the lost, to engage the lost, to take the mission of God seriously. What if, look, it's, it's not okay for us to just continue to be kind of the couple hundred people we got. We need to grow. And whether that means we get to be a bigger church, I don't know, but I think, I think it means some sort of numeric growth. And obviously we're growing, we're moving into another building, but it's not okay for us five years from now to be in, you know, Three, four hundred people still. That's not okay. And that, does that mean we grow to be a big church? I don't know. Maybe I think it means that we grow to a certain level that we deem appropriate for our ability as leaders to handle. It means we plant another church here in this area. 
But what if we actually took missions seriously? What if, what if everybody, there's a young lady in this church and she is just grabbing a hold of the mission of God to the urban inner city and she, she just has a passion. She's leading a life point group to go and reach out to and partner with Highland Community Church and she just, in that particular area, I'm not saying everybody has to have a ministry to the poor, to the, to the down and out, but this particular sister has a burden for that and she's just, she's not waiting on Reynolds or Hawk or somebody. She's just taking it. She's grabbing the bull by the horns. She's calling a bunch of people emailing a bunch of people, stepping up in her inadequacy, in her broken life, like all of us are inadequate and broken, but in the power of God that he's put in her, and she's stepping up and she's leading, and God's doing great things through her. And she's just like everybody else in this room. What if, what if everybody just sort of had that passion? Now, it doesn't have to be Highland Community Church or the poor. Maybe it's your rich white folks in your neighborhood because a lost rich white person is just as lost as a guy that grows up on drugs in Bib City. Lost is lost. And so what if we all took mission seriously in our little sphere of influence and it wasn't okay to be the cool little hip church with a bunch of pretty white people? What if that wasn't okay? What if, what if we just had a passion for invites and people that were around us? What if we just, what if we took mission seriously? And I end on this. I long for this. Because I read the scriptures and I see this empowering presence of God that fueled the early church. And I see the utter lack of it in the American church today, and I'm, quite frankly, I'm convicted. But what if we prayed for and sought God's empowering presence among us? What if when people were sick, we prayed for them to be healed, and occasionally God healed the sick among us as a sign of his goodness. And sometimes he didn't, and we labored well with that person. What if God, what if, what if when marriages were broken and falling apart, we were honest about that, and we prayed for God's healing presence to come and restore a relationship that seemed utterly broken, and God did those type of things among us? What if God cured people of habitual sins and instead of being private about it like we went public and it became a great testimony of God's grace what if God really moved among us in a miraculous way and he changed hearts and he melted hardened hearts and he brought life into a place what if what if what happened in the book of acts happened here, and I'm not talking about everybody speaking in tongues and stuff, although that would be great if some of you got that gift, do it, but in order, we'll talk about that some other time. But what if, what if we like, what if the presence of the biblical God dwelled among us? And it drew people, and it broke chains, and it healed broken lives. And it empowered a people. And it started ministries. And it caused all manner of fruit to be born through a group of people who cared more about Jesus 
than they did about their own stuff. What would that look like? What does it look like in your life? What does it look like in my life? For me, I think it means leading more courageously. For me, I think it means dying to my ego and my desire for success and acclaim. For me, I think it means shepherding people better, getting to know people, sitting down with people in hard situations better, preaching more passionately, preaching more clearly, preaching more evangelistically. And quite honestly, I think it means for me ordering my private home life, my life as a husband and my life as a dad, a little bit more biblically so that I don't struggle with hypocrisy so much. What's it look like for you that Christ would be preeminent in all things? And Lord, as we close out this time of word and move into a time of worship, Lord, I pray that my words would be received The things that I have said that were not of you, I pray that they'd fall to the ground if there was anything. And the thing that is uh, eternal and timely and heavenly, I pray that it would hit our hearts. In particular, God, I pray for uh, the men in this church, many of whom I know are struggling, angry, resentful, confused, and anxious. I know that because that's often the way I feel. Would you give us the uncommon grace of being a community that endeavors to do this biblical masculinity and biblical femininity well? Would husbands sacrificially lead? Would wives revel in the security that biblical masculinity brings? Would young men in this room that are not married, would you purify their hearts and would you help them treat single women not as potential dates or mates or bodies, but as as sisters, as Paul writes to Timothy? Would you cause a burden for uh, an older generation of parents that have raised children already and are now empty nesters, would you put a burden on their hearts even though they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination? Would you cause them to have a burden for something bigger than golf and retirement and uh, recreation? And would you let their last 20 or 30 years be the most fruitful years of their life as they pour out their wisdom and their rugged life experience on younger people would you cause that to happen god would you would you set us would you spark that in somebody's life today god would we be a church that's not afraid of difficult biblical truth i mean we have to wrestle with these issues we we got to wrestle with your sovereignty not just in salvation but in all things including your sovereignty over evil And Lord, if there's people in this room who are still on edge about where I stand on that, would you either cause them to get over it or would you graciously move them on to another church where they can give their heart to it? 
God, would you, would you cause us, though, as a people, to be a group of folks who just endeavor to sink our teeth into the scriptures and not be silly, goofy, little topical Christians who just want messages on how to have a better marriage or how to be, you know, how to fight fear better. But would you let us dive into the scriptures and from our seeing and savoring Jesus in the word, would you cause us to be better husbands? Would you cause us to fight fear better because we're biblical, not because we're topical, self-absorbed Christians who just want truth to get us through the week? Would you do that, Jesus? We need it. God, would you pour out your spirit on us? Would you do things in us that you did in the book of Acts? But would you cause us to be well-led and disciplined and ordered and it wouldn't take on some goofy, strange, charismatic feel where people are pushed away from our spirituality but they're drawn towards it. Would you do that, Jesus? Would you do that? And God, would you crucify me Because I am the greatest sinner I know. And I feel like I am a ceiling so often on your mission in this church. So would you blow me up first? And would I die? And would Christ live more in me? And would it bear much fruit? And now would you let my dear friends wrestle with these questions as well? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.